Oh, and this is number three. Oh, we did let number three last week. Oh, sorry. Can't jump right in. Now I can go. Now we are on. I'm going to start over. Good morning. This is the English Sunday School class for Young Son Baptist Church, October 24th, 2021. As we are still looking at the evidence from geology for biblical creationism, last week we saw with transcontinental rock layers the third evidence from this series on how geology speaks to biblical creation and not evolution. This week, evidence number four is sand that is transported across country. So there are, there's sediment that we can test and detect. Oh, that is a horrible photo. My bad. It's fine. It's fine. So, <laughs> sand, sediment transported across long distances. In the last few weeks, we've seen evidence that rapidly deposited sediment layers containing rapidly buried plant and animal fossils are found spread across vast areas of all of the continents, often high above sea level. There is no known slow and gradual geologic process in the present world that can currently produce such fossiliferous, that means full of fossils, sediment layers spread across continents. <laughs> Though evolutionary geologists hate to admit this, only a global flood in which the ocean waters flooded over the continents could have done this. And this is a zoomed-in photo, thus making it awful, of the Coconino sandstone layer of the Grand Canyon, right? The Kaibab form, uh, plateau at the top, then another formation, then the Coconino sandstone, and then beneath it were the layers that we discussed. I'll show another photo in a minute that looks better. But you can definitely distinct, distinctively see that color there of the Coconino sandstone. Does, oh, get ahead of myself. It logically follows that when the floodwaters swept over the continents and rapidly deposited these sediment layers across such vast areas, that these sediments had to have been transported long distances. In other words, the sediments that's in the strata had to come from a distant source. So the difference is, and that's exactly the evidence we find, but the difference is if you think long, gradual processes, you think that this red rock somehow produced the white rock above it. But obviously the same minerals that are in this rock, in this environment, can't produce this color of rock in the same environment. So this mineral had to have been moved from somewhere else by erosion and, and, and movement to bring it into this environment that is naturally this color. Okay, that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to say there. So last week we discussed the Coconino sandstone and its spectacular view um, across the this landscape of the Grand Canyon. Does anyone remember how thick, on average, the Coconino sandstone layer is? <coughs> remember we showed the graphic where it covers most of the United States and up into Canada, and it's a huge layer of rock? And remember the average thickness? You're right, 96 meters thick, absolutely. I heard you. <laughs> and it's also, it covers an area of over 518,000 square kilometers. That was that huge graphic. But it contains over 41,000 cubic kilometers of sand. The question is, if this 
sand in that huge area is not from this environment, where did it come from? And how? And then how do we know? So those are the questions we're going to ask today. Where did it come from? How did it get there? And how do we know? The sand grains of the Coconino sandstone layer are pure quartz, which is a glass mineral. And that's why it has such a distinctive color, that, that buff, off-white color. <clears throat> Directly underneath it, as I was saying, is the red-brown layer of what's called the Hermit Foundation. Formation, sorry, Hermit Formation. So the Hermit Formation consists of siltstone and shale. So this is quartz, this is siltstone and shale, and it's in a perfect layer. There's no way that it was just deposited by wind blowing rocks around. It had to have been flooding that brought it in from somewhere else. We spoke last week also about cross beds <clears throat> and how water flowing across sand, right, can make these dunes and make the angle, angled cross beds underneath. And we saw a photo of the Coconino sandstone layers and how they had cross beds. The cross beds of the Coconino sandstone layer actually point as if the, where the dunes were formed, those dunes point towards the south. That means that the water was coming from the north as it flowed and moved those, all of those minerals. So whatever minerals are deposited in the Coconino sandstone of the Grand Canyon came from north. We can see that in the evidence of which way these dune tips are pointing. That means the water flow had to flow this way. And in this particular time, we're saying from the north to the south because of where the, the cross beds point. <clears throat> Another clue is that the Coconino sandstone layer thins out as you move north toward Utah. Remember how we talked about how big of an area it covered? It thins out toward Utah, and at one point it stops. But the hermit formation underneath it continues beyond Utah. So for that, to, that means that if there's none here, and the hermit formation continues, then what is north of it, there has to be another source of that quartz farther north to be able to move it across the hermit formation to where it sits on top of it in the Grand Canyon. The source of it had to be somewhere else. The Grand Canyon has another set of layers. Here's a better photo of all of them. Again, this is where we were looking, the Coconino sandstone layer toward the top. The hermit shale is there. We talked a few weeks ago about the red wall limestone, right, that's here. And then between them, between the hermit shale and the red wall limestone is this group of sediment here, right, that's pretty distinctive called the supai group, and it's several layers grouped together of sedimentary sandstone. And let's see if this is just as bad as that last one. Okay, zoomed in a little. All right. Um, this supai group of sediment um, must have come from far away because the sandstone beds within the strata between the hermit formation and the red wall limestone <clears throat> have sand wave remnants, like what we were talking about with the cross beds, that point to the southeast, not to the south. Okay, so now you have a formation of rocks. Go back. The, these, this layer that is in here has cross beds pointing to the southeast, and this layer up here has cross beds pointing to the south. So when this layer was laid down, that means the water had to have been coming from the north 
west to point to the southeast. Um, so to the north and the west of the Grand Canyon, there's more of this red wall limestone, which is the layer underneath the Supai group. But there's no nearby source of quartz sand for either of these beds that this, the quartz then sits above. So the thing about that is that the sand must have come from a, an incredibly far distance because as we trace the beds, we get to a point where we see no quartz. So we have to keep going and search for another source of quartz. But there are other sediments that have been transported across the continent as well. That's a pretty good photo. All right, I love it when a plant comes together. There's a third layer of sandstone higher in the strata sequence, which gives us another clue to where the sand um, came from and how it was able to make those huge deposits. This is the Navajo sandstone of southern Utah, and it's best seen in these, these spectacular mesas and cliffs in the Zion National Park in Utah. Would love to go there. Haven't been there yet. The rock layer of, the, of this uh, here sits well above the rock layer of the Kaibab limestone, which is the very top of the Grand Canyon. So when you, if you're looking at the geology here in Utah, this layer of stone, the Kaibab limestone layer, is below the ground, right? So this layer is above the Kaibab limestone in U Utah, but doesn't exist in the Grand Canyon because the Kaibab limestone is the highest at the lip of the Grand Canyon. This sandstone also consists of a very pure quartz, which gives it this distinct um, white color. But it has another, uh, and then also it ha also has these remnants of sand waves. But they call this a checkerboard um, sandstone because it has it has both waves and erosion, so it creates um, kind of a cross pattern. But within this sandstone, there's another mineral called zircon. And I didn't make that up. It's not something from a sci-fi movie. Mm -hmm. Zircon <laughs> is relatively easy to trace because it has um, it contains radioactive uranium. So it's not just a sand mineral; it's radioactive. And so you can use a on this this uh, sandstone with the zircon in it. You can use a radio radiometric dating method called uranium lead dating. It's dating is but it's a radioactive method of just identifying things together. The evolutionists like to call it a dating method, like they call carbon-14 a dating method. But using these grains, we don't have to worry about how old they are relative to the history of the world, but we do look at them how they're dated relative to rock in other areas, which can make them relatively the same. Does that make sense? We care about how they relatively date but we can't necessarily trust how they date to some arbitrary um, existence of millions of years, millions of years, right? But how they relatively line up <clears throat> shows that this layer in Utah matches the stone in the Appalachians in um, New York and Pennsylvania. So that's a vast area for this to have been transported. Some of it also matches in Canada. So this is the graphic I've been trying to get to, which is really going to bring it all together for you. <clears throat> We're talking about a source over here in the Appalachian Mountain Range of sand that, is, that was transported somehow into, and it's hard to see, there's a blue line here, 
and there's a, um, a, a sort of orange line here. And that's showing that in Utah, for the, the Zion uh, National Park, this layer of the Navajo sandstone is well above the Kaibab, uh, or the Coconino sandstone layer, right? Which over here, to the south, in the Grand Canyon, is near the top, right? Um, but this layer, the blue layer, right, is shown to have been drugged 3,000 kilometers from over here in the Appalachians. There's no way that that sand gets moved over to here by a river or by rainwater, right? The, the elevation across here changes so many times. There's, it's absolutely impossible. Evolutionists try to say, oh, there must have been, as meaning we don't know, we're making it up, there must have been some transcontinental river system that transported all of that, all of that sand. But how do they explain any river flowing constantly across the continent for millions of years? It's impossible. There's no record of that happening anytime, ever. And even if it was just some local movement of water, you can't keep water moving for millions of years. It doesn't happen. We know that there is a process of, of water in the world, right? Where as water moves and it's exposed to the sun, part of it evaporates, right? Some of it's soaked into the ground around it to be dissipated into the, the groundwater. Some of it is in tributaries if there's runoff and it runs away from that river system. If the source, the source can't have an eternal amount of water, the destination of, of a lake can't have any, an, an infinite amount of water, there has to be runoff, there has to be evaporation, there have to be seasons, there has to be drought, right? The, the world has, even if you believe in uniformitarian evolution, you have to believe that there were times where, the, where seasons were different, where the climate was different, and you can't have a river system that can flow one way across a continent for a million years. There's no way to prove that or to even postulate that. That would still be going. Right, that would still be going at any time. And then stop, suddenly, Conveniently, when man started recording history. It's just silly to me. But what does explain this perfectly is massive flooding across an entire continent that very quickly takes all of the what's over here and pushes it all the way across the continent. And then the currents change, right? And massive flooding pushes this stuff this way because this is the general source up here near Wyoming of where we can find the nearest source of enough quartz to get it into the Coconino sandstone layer here, right? So we're talking about floodwaters doing this, floodwaters doing this, and if the whole world is covered in water, it's easy to think that something like this could happen, that all of it could get swirled around in a storm, and then as the waters recede, right, this elevation is actually higher than this elevation because of tectonic plate activity, right, as the waters are receding and the plates are moving, some ground gets pushed up, other ground gets pushed down, right? And that causes minerals to move. Just like in your little sand game, you can make it move if you change in different directions. So the, there, there's absolute evidence here to believe in a worldwide flood and not to believe in evolution. Just to give you more, a little more stats before we stop. The evidence is overwhelming of the water flowing in one direction across the United States. There were 15,615 North American localities where they 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 took at they looked at water current direction indicators by the geologists. 
That's a lot of indicators. Not five or six, mm -hmm. over 15,000 that all show throughout the geologic record that through what the, ev the evolutionists refer to as the Paleozoic era, right? That just means a certain layer. Because they try to say that the layers date the, the rocks and the rocks date the, the rocks date the fossils and the fossils date the rocks. But that the, all the water was flowing in this one direction across the country, right? So they, it's, it's just absurd to try to think that hundreds of millions of years the water could flow that way. Maybe a couple months. That's what we believe. <laughs> the only logical viable explanation is a global cataclysmic Genesis flood as recorded in Genesis 7 and 8 where the Bible describes the flood in which the waters covered the whole earth. They swept across entire continents and we would expect to find that these global waters eroded sediment, transported them across whole continents and deposited them in layers that cover vast areas so we can see them. We've now seen this and we've seen that this is exactly what we find in the record. So next week we'll look at another relative geological uh, phenomenon called erosion and show how erosion could not have taken place over millions and millions of years, but could have happened very, very quickly. And we will look at this photo and ask the question, did this canyon get formed by, is this a drying riverbed, right, of a canyon that was formed by long, slow, gradual processes over millions of years with a little bit of water, or did it happen very quickly with a lot of water? And if you recognize the photo, don't spoil it for anybody. Okay, let's pray and we'll go to the message. Heavenly Father, we thank you.